we are beginning together both uh, here and in the gym at New Heights and up at our North Campus Riverside to walk through the book of Acts uh, together. So we'll uh, each be on the same text uh, for the whole summer because Acts is significant. It is uh, the story of how the spirit-filled and empowered body of Christ moved out into the world. So we'll begin that story on the day of Pentecost, which the story is in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all gathered together in one place. And then suddenly they heard the sound like a violent wind blowing from heaven, and it filled the whole place where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separate and rest on each head. And they spoke in other languages as the Holy Spirit enabled them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Years and years ago, a colleague of mine answered the phone at his church, and the voice on the other end said, Is your church spirit-filled? And he said, well, well, yes, we are. And then the uh, questioner persisted and said, well, does your church speak in tongues? And he said, well, not normally. Well, then you're not spirit-filled, said the caller and hung the phone up. That's been really a debate that's uh, not just around here in the 20th and 21st century among uh, Protestants, but actually a debate perhaps that can go on since the start of the church around the issue of what constitutes a spirit-filled church. What does it mean that your church is filled with the Holy Spirit of God? And a lot of people, in order to try to define what a spirit filled church looks like goes back to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So I thought we would take a brief look at that and uh, see what it teaches us. If you look at Acts chapter 2 and they're gathered together, one of the first things that you note is uh, what Nona reminded the children, and that is those who were filled with the Spirit began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them the ability. This is known as speaking in tongues. There's debate in some communities as to whether it's a language that's, uh, that's known someplace on the planet or whether it might be, uh, in Paul's case, Gosselia, a tongue perhaps known only only to God and to those to whom God gives the interpretation. Either way, the other language is present and an evidence of the Spirit of God. It's worth noting that Paul said, I speak in tongues more than any of you, and probably worth noting that we don't have a recorded instance of Jesus doing so. So it is significant, but we keep it in uh, perspective. It is not the only sign. There are other signs um, from the Pentecost day. Another sign is a dynamic preaching of God. God's word, apparently, uh, because Peter speaks and 3,000 people at the end of the service come forward to repent and be baptized and accept Jesus as the Messiah. So you get a di- Some people say, well, you're spirit filled if people are dynamic in their communication of the word of God and their experience of God's word. And others say, well, your, your church is spirit filled if it's, it's growing rapidly and people's lives are changing. And, and I think all that probably fits Acts chapter two. And then if you fast forward to the end of Acts chapter two, 
One of the things we learn about these 3,000 people is all the ones who were um, accepted Christ as the Messiah got together and formed extremely close community. So some will argue that a sign of the Holy Spirit is the kind of bonding and the unity that we have with each other. Uh, This morning, uh, Pastor Dinah is preaching on the same text in the gym, and and she reminded me uh, of what all the hearers at the first Pentecost would have remembered, and that is a story in Genesis 11 of the Tower of Babel, uh, how we used to all be together and be unified, and then at the Tower of Babel, their languages got confused and people got separate from each other, and so now we see a community building together, and that's, that's a sign of the Spirit as well. But what I really want to do this morning is kind of push the debate even a little further, which is to say not just what do we learn by looking at this Pentecost day in Acts chapter 2 shortly after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, but what might we learn if we went back to Pentecost as Jesus and his disciples likely understood it? In other words, when they showed up on Pentecost day at the temple, what were they expecting? What did they see at Pentecost? What was in their Bible, our Old Testament? Uh, So I'd like to push the debate in that direction uh, for a little bit this morning and see if that could help inform our knowledge of what it is to be a church that's filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me, first of all, uh, tell you that what God did is God commanded in the Scripture observance of three major festivals. There were others as well, but three major ones. The Passover, and then uh, there was to be after the Sabbath, after the Passover, uh, seven weeks, full weeks. And then there was on the 50th day uh, a a celebration, and that celebration was called uh, Shavuot, or the Festival of, uh, of weeks, marking the seven weeks that had taken place. Uh, the Greek term for this day was Pentecost because it was 50 days after the Passover uh, that followed, um, excuse me, the Sabbath that followed the Passover. So the Greek-speaking world, they called it Pentecost. So that was the second major festival. Then there was a third major festival uh, called the Festival of, of Booths or Tabernacles are known as Sukkot. And God commanded this. But this uh, was like a commanded party and vacation. As one rabbi who studies ancient uh, Judaism said, Christmas and Easter for Christians do not even begin to compare with the joy that was experienced by people who came to Jerusalem in the first century for Passover and for uh, Shavuot or Pentecost and for Sukkot. Josephus tells us a million pilgrims would descend upon Jerusalem from all over the world. A town that probably had a population of 30 to 50,000, swelling to a million, all of them gathering together around the temple on this special day. Uh, it was great joy and excitement, and as the rabbi said, our wonderful Christmas Eve and Easter morning services, as nice as they are, we, don't ex- uh, we are not a uh, tenth as exuberant as people were when they celebrated these festivals. So, God commands this festival. million people roll in. Well, what were they doing? What were they expecting? What did they mean by Pentecost? Uh, There are several clues, not only in the scripture, but in the practice of the Jews by the first century. The first one was this. They were commanded in Leviticus 23 to bring to God at Pentecost, at Shavuot, uh, a couple loaves of bread. They were to bring a bull, and they were to bring seven male lambs without defect. In other words, they were to bring symbols of the gifts that God had given them. It was a way of saying on Shavuot, on Pentecost, Thank you, God, that I can eat. Thanks for bread. 
Thanks for food that you, you bring me from the land and uh, from the animals, the resources that you've given us. It was, first of all, a great celebration of what we might call Thanksgiving. But over time, uh, the rabbis uh, began to add to that in the practice of uh, the people. One of the things they noticed was Moses taught the people in Deuteronomy 8.3 that man does not live by word alone. You pro- I mean by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So they figured, wow, we shouldn't just be celebrating bread at uh, Shavuot. We should also celebrate God's word. So they started reading every Pentecost day that was celebrated, Exodus 19 and 20, the account of God's uh, the setting and the giving of the Ten Commandments. And it'd be like what we call a celebration of God's Word. They'd celebrate the Bible at, uh, at Pentecost because we don't just live by bread alone. So they would say, thank you to God for everything you've brought. They would recommit and dedicate themselves to God's Word. It would be read to them. Then a third thing that happened is that also began to be an occasion to celebrate the presence of God, that God was really with them in tangible and powerful ways. And they developed a practice by Jesus' day of reading on Pentecost Day Ezekiel 1 and 2. Now, if you get a chance this afternoon, go home and flip through Ezekiel 1 and 2. It's about the presence of God. It's about a vision of God. And you probably remember the chariot with the wheels uh, turning. Uh, It'll sound familiar, but some of the key symbols were fire, wind, and God's voice. Hold on to that. So Exodus, um, excuse me, 19 and 20, and then Ezekiel 1 and 2 were always read on this Pentecost day. And then there was a fourth thing, and it seems minor to us, but it was significant to them. It was also a day to celebrate uh, the life and the work of King David that God had done. And so uh, the tradition began to be, uh, and perhaps it's right, the tradition was that, um, that David actually died on Pentecost. The, that King David, that was his, the day of his death. And so just as the rabbis had calculated that Moses received the Ten Commandments on Pentecost Day because they figured it was five weeks thereabout, um, uh, I mean seven weeks, 50 days thereabout from the Passover to Moses getting on top of the mountain, they also calculated that David died on this day. And that explains why if you go to the sermon that Peter preaches that 3,000 people responded to, uh, he talks about David in the sermon and says, look, we all know David's dead. Well, why bother to talk about David? Well, one of the answers is, just as I might mention Memorial Day this weekend, because it's a day we all know and understand, he mentions David's death because Pentecost plugs into that. So there you have it. There became, as uh, Pentecost developed, a celebration of thanksgiving to God, a celebration of keeping God's word, a celebration of recognizing the powerful presence of God, and a celebration of the life and death of King David. So here's the scene. A million people, says Josephus, descending on uh, the temple. And you probably know that the temple's smaller than the building we're in now, so people aren't inside. They're, they're gathered all around outside. And can you imagine somebody gets up and starts to read Ezekiel 1 and 2 about fire, about wind, about the voice of God and what happens? The very things that they're reading about at the hour of worship, 9 o'clock in the morning, start happening. They're reading about fire and tongues of fire come. They're reading about wind and a violent wind blows through. They're reading about God's voice and people start speaking in tongues. Could you imagine? It would be as if you came to worship God this morning and God actually showed up and sat next to you in a way that you could touch and feel 
and sense the very thing they claimed to expect and they looked for actually happened. It must have been mind-blowing. It reminded me of something that happened years and years ago. I went to the hospital and um, I was, uh, there was a man who had back trouble. He was uh, facing a back surgery there in the hospital. But he asked, he said, Pastor, before you leave, will you pray for me? And I said, certainly. He said, will you pray that God will heal my back? And I said, of course. So I did pray for him, and I did ask God to heal his back. And I'd finished the prayer, and a lot of you know when pastor comes to visit, prayer means I'm out the door. You know, so you're going to pray, and the pastor starts to turn, and he jumps out of bed. And he says, I'm healed. I don't need surgery. And he starts moving toward me. And I said, that's wonderful. Let's stay here. I said, let the doctors check you out. And, and to fast forward the story, sure enough, miraculously, he didn't need surgery, was indeed healed. But I'm telling you, I remember the words of Fred Craddock when something similar like that happened to him. He said he walked out in the parking lot and looked up to God and said, don't you ever let that happen again. Don't do that to me. I mean, I was praying, but I didn't expect you'd really do it. Well, I've I've changed my prayer since then to expect more. But could you imagine that you came reading about fire, wind, voices, and all of a sudden they happened. Pentecost actually took place. And all they were looking for was fulfilled. So what did they do? Did they build a statue? Did they vote uh, to memorialize it in some special way? This is what Acts said they did. It's very interesting. Acts said their response to this amazing fulfillment of what God had promised was this. They all got together and shared everything they had and gave it away to anybody who was needy. What? Why not like a a statue or a proclamation or just go home and say, you'll never guess what happened in church today. Instead, they brought all of their resources, piled them together, and gave them to the needy. Now, where did they get that? Well, my first thought was, well, you know, when God really touches your life, I think the normal response is generosity. You realize how much God loves you, you want to love others. But I don't think that's what's going on here. You see, one of the things that I didn't tell you about Pentecost is this. That in the 12th century since Moses, one of the practices that developed was that since not everyone was a farmer, just like not everyone's a farmer today... People, you didn't just bring the prescribed sacrifices to God. The practice also became that you brought other food gifts to God. And what you did on Pentecost Day is you had a giant party and the guests of honor were the poor. And they got that because in Leviticus 23, God says, you're going to keep the festival of weeks. And he said, this is the way you're going to do it. You aren't going to harvest the corners of your field. You're going to leave them for the poor and the hungry. So as they moved on and advanced and not everyone was a farmer anymore, what they realized they could do was take food, gifts, and other gifts they had and feed the poor who were among them. Took their resources, piled them together, gave them away to anybody who had need, and they called that Pentecost. And so when Pentecost actually happened and everything they looked for was fulfilled, That was what they knew to do. We ought to do what God told us to do. Share and give away. And so they did. Is your church spirit-filled? Are there some who are responsive in tongues? Are there others or most who are committed to Scripture? Are lives changing? Is the place growing and thriving? Is community strengthened? These are all important. 
But God would say, don't forget this one. Are the poor fed and cared for? Are the hungry? Do they find food in your midst? That's the sign of the Spirit. And I think that's real significant because they knew Ezekiel better than I know it, probably better than you know it. And they know that Ezekiel 1 and 2 was about, uh, it's a vision of God, but if you read carefully, it's about the vision of God actually leaving the temple. People have been, car- um, been carried off into exile. They're about to be slaves to Babylon. So Ezekiel's vision is God's leaving the temple and actually going with them. That where they are, God is going to be. God has left the building in Ezekiel and resides among the people. And then they come forward 600 years to this Pentecost day in Acts 2. And what happens? The fire and the wind and the voices fall on the people outside the building, gathered in what's known as the house, which is not just the inside of the temple. It's, the, it's all the grounds. And God is saying, I'm leaving the building again. And I'm going into you. And my new temple is not just here on Mount Zion. My new temple is you. That's real important. I know we've talked about it before, but just real quickly. In the ancient world, the way you knew about a a god was what you saw in that god's temple. The bigger and badder the temple, the bigger and badder was the god. And so, you know, there there are temples that are part of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The, The temple to Apollo... Uh, the temple to Artemis. There's a mighty temple to Zeus and, and Pergamon. There's even temple to the emperor himself in Ephesus. And you had a big, bad temple to show how big and bad and awesome was your God. And our God changed the deal. And said it's not how big the building is. It's what happens in the people. My temple as they go out in the world. What do people know about our God? Plain and simple answer, what they see in you. Do they see in you someone who cares for those in need? If they see that, they see our God who cares for those in need. We are people who follow after a God who says part of being spirit-filled is being generous and sharing with those who do not have. Just as much as practicing the gifts of the Spirit, studying the Scripture, being community. If we are to be people of God, that means by definition we're people who care about others. Stories told during Alexander the Great's time, which would be um, three centuries before this Pentecost celebration, that one of the sentries fell asleep on guard duty. So he was arrested. I mean, you can't have your guards sleeping on the job. was brought before Alexander the Great himself. And Alexander the Great was to pronounce judgment on this sleeping sentry. But first, Alexander the Great carried out an interrogation. And he said to the man, young man, what's your name? And sheepishly, the young man said, "Um, Alexander, just like yours, O king. Alexander the Great thought about it for a moment and then looked at the man and said, well, young man, either change your ways or change your name. We are named after the one who cared. May our ways reflect his own.